Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day, and we thank you that we, your people, may gather together uh, on Sunday mornings to worship you in spirit and truth, and we thank you for this little bit of time before our worship service uh, that we have carved out to look at the doctrines of your church, and we thank you uh, for the historic confessions and catechisms, such as the Heidelberg Catechism, and we thank you for the faithfulness to Scripture and to the Reformed tradition that we study today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are uh, looking at, this is day six, uh, Lord's Day six of the Catechism. We are looking at questions 16, 17, 18, and 19, I believe that is correct. And most of the discussion that I I hope for us to get to uh, is with question 19. Uh, so yeah, if you if you you didn't pick up a handout when you came in, they're they're back there at the back. Um, all right, so we'll pause just a second. Thanks to you for passing out the the handouts. All right, so let's begin with, and it, my point is, I'm going to move through 16, 17, 18. Fairly, fairly quickly. We're, we are going to discuss them, um, but I'm, I'm really wanting to get to 19, partly because uh, 19 is going to sum up some of the other things uh, that we've looked at. So let's look first of all at this question 16. I will remind you that the Heidelberg Catechism builds upon itself. So these are not standalone questions and answers per se. They're building on what we have looked at previously. Question number 16, why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? Answer, God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin, but a sinful human could never pay for others. Now, we'll pause there for just a second, and and the first question is on your handout, but I don't want that to be the first question. The first question I want to ask is, what did we look at last week? that sort of teed up this question. What did we look at last week? I know I'm, I'm jogging your memory, uh, but what did we look at last week that, that really set the tone for this question to be asked? Okay, so God, God's not going to allow disobedience to go unpunished. Uh, what else? What else did we look at last week that would tee up this question? We saw how um, no one can pay for someone else's That's right. That, that, that's exactly right. Question number 14, can another creature, any at all, it asks, pay this debt for us? That is our sin debt. And uh, the answer is No. That, that's exactly what actually the answer says, no. Uh, but it elaborates, of course. Uh, to begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. And so, last week we, we looked at this idea that, that there is a debt to be paid, there is God's wrath to be poured out in punishment for sin, but another creature like us cannot bear God's wrath. Furthermore, we cannot 
be substituted vicariously for uh, another sin. And so that's where this question is taking us. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? And so my question to you is, is why does the catechism specify a human? Why must the mediator be human? All right, so the, the, the blood of, of, of bulls and, and rams, while serves as a substitute and certainly is pointing to something, um, they're not a human. They're not a human being. So the blood is required, but it is lacking as a final, once-for-all substitute. Why else? Why, why must the mediator be a human being? Okay, okay, I like where you're going, I, and I, I've not thought about that, and it's, it's actually not in uh, the proof texts that are provided, but I think that's a really good direction to go, is the idea of the kinsman redeemer. He must be like us, meaning he must be, be human, and, 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 and so certainly that's going uh, with what Brandon's talking about, is, is that there's got to be a human sacrifice, so the, there's not uh, a uh, not just merely an animal sacrifice, but the the point I'm I'm trying to make here on the idea of the human is is Adam. Adam was the first human. He also is our great grandfather in sin. He also is the reason why we are ensnared in sin, why we have a sin nature. It all goes back to the first human being. And, I, and I'm not making this up. Of course, this is the Apostle Paul's argument. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And, and so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that it, this began with a man so also then our mediator must be, in kind, a man. It begins and ends, so to speak. Uh, again, this is the argument that Paul is making in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, but, skipping ahead, <clears throat> but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And again, we could go a number of directions with that, but in keeping with this question and answer in the catechism, the general point is, is that as sin entered by one man, so also sin must be atoned for by that one man. Which leads us to ask then, it specifies here, a true and a righteous man. And the question is, is why does the catechism specify a righteous man? I'm going to just go ahead and go out on a limb and assume everybody knows that a true man is 
a, a man, so he's got to be real, he's got to be a human being. So we've got that part. But why righteous? Why does he need to be a righteous human? Yeah, if, if you could say that a little bit louder. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't have mattered to anything, actually, right? I mean, so, so if, if, if he was a, a sinner, then uh, he's not an, a perfect atoning sacrifice, right? Right? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can hear J.D., what he said is even the high priest under the sacrificial system <clears throat> had to make a sacrifice for himself, so then to proceed in the sacrifice for the people. This is, this is where, to piggyback on what J.D. said, this is where the writer of Hebrews says, he says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so, so his vicarious atonement is based on his perfect righteousness. It's the way the Apostle Peter says, says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, right? And so that's the idea is that he was a righteous human. So not only did he have to be a man like Adam, so also he had to be not a sinner. He had to be righteous and therefore to atone for sin, which leads us to the Next question, so we've talked about the human aspect of Jesus. Now let's think about the divine. The question is, is why must the mediator also be true God? You know, some, while you're thinking about this, some uh, say, well, you know, in, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul talks about uh, Jesus giving up His divinity. That, that's not a true statement, incidentally. I'm saying that's what they say. Uh, and, and so the idea is that in giving up his divinity, he was just a, just a mere mortal like us. Uh, well, that's a manipulative, manipulative, manipulation of Scripture, uh, what Paul is actually saying in Philippians chapter 2, that he set aside those aspects of his divinity that he might be a man, Still fully God, still fully man, but certain aspects of His divine nature so also that He put aside momentarily. And you think about this, uh, for example, uh, His omnipotence and things of this nature, which He still had as God, but in that moment in time, His humanity absorbing, or rather His divinity absorbing that humanity, so also He still remained in, as our catechism says, two distinct natures and one person forever. And so the answer to the question, why must the mediator also be true God, 
presumes that very thing, that He is true God. And so the answer is, so that the mediator, by the power of His divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in His humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Now there are a number of, of, of twists and turns there. Let's make sure that we've, we've got this right. The mediator, by the power of His divinity, that distinct nature, His divine nature, might bear the weight of God's wrath in His humanity. So that statement there is combining the God and man, those two distinct natures, into the one person who is Jesus Christ in His humanity and in being fully God and fully man, He was the man that was required as the sacrifice. He is the man that was required for sacrifice. He is God who can bear the wrath of God. And therefore, by virtue of those two distinct natures in one person, He is able to, look at the language, earn for us and restore us righteousness and life. And so, why does... The catechism specify true God here. Why is it important for us to understand that He is truly God? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the pouring out of, of, of God's, the cosmic consequences for sin, as J.D. said, is, is hard for us as human beings to uh, imagine. Um, scripture uh, gives us uh, pictures and ex- historical examples uh, for us to, to look at. And, and, and again, those, those are helpful. I mean, one great example would be God's pouring out uh, of His wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, what was the result of that? Or for, for what the Scripture say it, it, it was or looked like? It says fire and sulfur. And then what was the result of that? I mean, complete incineration. The only thing that was left, according to Scripture, was the smoke rising that Abraham was able to witness on the horizon. That, that was it. So those, those two cities were completely incinerated by virtue of God's wrath. And so there are examples like that, but, but again, even in looking at those examples, um, it, it, is, it is hard for us to fathom uh, the magnitude, I think the, 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 the point J.D. is making, the magnitude of God's wrath could only be borne by God the Son. And so uh, there are several things I want to draw to your attention. First of all, Jesus, in being true God, had to have the power to sustain God's wrath. He had to be able to bear it. Secondly, he had to have the ability to earn God's favor. That is, he had to be that perfect sacrifice who could not only bear the wrath, but also in turn earn God's favor, which is using the language here of the catechism. And then thirdly, he had to have the ability to give what he has earned. Those are three things that are worth remembering about Christ's atoning work. 
He had the power to sustain God's wrath. He had the ability to earn God's favor. And thirdly, he had the ability to give what he had earned. And, and there's a, a, a verse that, and I would imagine you have it memorized by now because I quote it so often. Uh, but what does 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tell us? For our sake, God made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might be become the righteousness of God. And, and, and that is, theologians will sometimes refer to that, to that as the great exchange. Um, our sin for Christ's righteousness. But the idea here is that Christ had to be truly God in order to bear the wrath of God be the perfect sacrifice, and be able to convey that to us. Again, think about this verse, and actually I know you all know this verse. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? The, The idea there is still conveyed in the same. He had to be the Son of God and He had to bear the wrath of God that he might be able to give what we could not earn. And so, that leads us to question 18. Then who is this mediator? Now, pause there for just a second. I, I just want you to enjoy the playfulness of this catechism. Um, because it is written in, in, in many ways, in, in especially if you're familiar to the, with the Westminster Standards, which we know and love, and, and I, I favor above the Heidelberg Catechism, of course, but there is a certain playfulness that the Heidelberg Catechism has that you don't find in the Westminster Scholasticism. Uh, and and it, you see it in examples like this. It's as if it is building... You mean he, 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 this mediator, which of course we all know who it is, right? But, but you mean this mediator, he has to be, he has to be fully man? What? You mean this mediator, he has to be fully God? What? And, and, and again, the playfulness is, is we're, we're sort of, who, who can this be? I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy talk from you weirdo Christians. This God, man, who can this be? This is the playfulness of the catechism. Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous human? Ah, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who. Who was given to us to completely deliver us and make us right with God. And that's just a beautiful answer. Yes. Yes, you, 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 you are actually, Phil. Yeah, I notice, yeah. yeah. But Phil has already pointed out to me that the things that I say, these are funny. Not everybody finds them funny. Yeah. <laughs> you read this stuff long enough, lots of stuff becomes funny. Uh, <laughs> or maybe that's it. Maybe when, you, when, you've, when you've spent the, the, the last over a decade studying theology, maybe you just find things funny that maybe it's really not that funny. <laughs> For there is one God, Paul says to Timothy, and there is one mediator between God and men, 
the man, Jesus Christ. That is such a beautiful verse. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, testifying to exactly what we are. And, and, and again, the requirements, the point here, the requirements of this mediator and the way that these, these questions, uh, perhaps not funny, Phil, but, and maybe not even playful, but certainly leading can you give me that? They're at least leading us in, in, in the sense that we are to think, what, what do these requirements make so clear? Well, what these requirements make so clear is that we are not Him. That, that's what we're, that's sort of, if you want, what's the big takeaway of this series of questions and the way that the questions are being asked. Of course, they are to direct us and to tell us about Christ, but the result is, is that we are to, to think, I, I cannot save myself. I am not this man. I do not have the, any of these abilities. Therefore, I must have a mediator, and Christ is the man. And so, if you consider, for example, in this answer, the word completely. Uh, and, and, and again, the, the, I think it's, it's there to emphasize this, is to deliver us, but, but Ursinus has added to completely deliver us, and completely make us right with God. Why is it... Why is it such an important word in understanding what we have become in Christ? Why is, is that word completely so important? And I might add this, it's, it's in a sense, um, it's discipleship. This is Christian, this one word is Christian discipleship. It's teaching us something and our, our, our understanding growth as, as Christians. Why is that word completely so important to our discipleship as Christians? It's confidence. We are confident He has done it. And there is no possibility that it would not be finished in Christ. What else? It also, so a lot of this is in response and coming out of reformation. And so the completely idea is he's doing that. There's no law, there's no, there's, there should be no concept in the Christian's mind that we can add to our salvation. Yeah. Or we need to do something. Yeah, yeah, I, and I'm I'm really glad you brought that up, Eric. In fact, Brandon uh, Morgan and I were talking about this after Sunday school last week, and I've not emphasized this. Uh, I'm trying to to make this a, a, a bit more um, less historical and a little, a little more just Christian discipleship. But but you 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 can't take a catechism written in fifteen published in 1563 out of the fact that it's right on the heels, it's on the front end of the Protestant Reformation, and it is written to, to many uh, believers who have come out of Roman Catholicism, and keeping in mind that at this time, the German Empire, uh, for which this was, Heidelberg was located, um, was still heavily influenced by Roman Catholicism. And, and, and so, I think you're exactly right. I think this is, this is emphasizing this to me, because if, if I have been raised in a way where I think, you know, well, I believe on, on Jesus, and that puts me headed in the right direction, um, but I've got my part to play. 
And I've got to make sure that I keep up with what I need to do and what I can add to, to your point, that I can, what can I add to what Jesus has done so I can make sure that I, I get there, that I get there in, in the end. And, uh, and, and that word completely just obliterates any kind of thinking that would be outside of we are justified by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. Uh, or as when our, our Bible study a couple of weeks ago, I'd read a quote uh, which I, I thought was, was just so uh, perfectly stated, and I'll get it, I'll botch it, but, but it was a, a Jerry Bridges quote that, that, that said, my righteousness today is the same righteousness of judgment day. I, I am no less righteous today if I am in Christ than I will be when I stand before Christ clothed in His righteousness. So the, the idea is completely is obliterating anything else but Christ and Christ alone. And so, <clears throat> question number 19. How do we come to know this? And this is where I want to spend just a little bit of time. How do we come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me God began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, God proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, God fulfilled it through His own beloved Son. Now, let, let's, let, let me just pause here for just a, a second and, and ask, um, what does... This, and this is... Uh, that statement is Reformed Theology 101. That's, that's the basics uh, of that. What is a type of theology uh, in the 20th, popularized in the 20th century and still, sadly, surviving today? Uh, what, what is a theology today uh, that runs contradictory to that answer? And you have to answer this because I know for a fact that a lot of you came out of this theology. So you got to know it. Yeah, dispensationalism. And what does classic dispensationalism, I'm not talking about the, the modern manipulations of it like Johnny MacArthur, but, but uh, what are, what are, uh, uh, what's classic dispensationalism teach us that's contrary to this teaching? Two different ways, right? So what's the one path? Keep the law. That's right. So God gave the law and dispensational teaches that, that the Jewish people were saved and going to heaven by keeping the law. And that track just keeps on running, right? And, 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 and you, you may have, have, have believed this prior to, to coming to, to covenant. And then the, the, the other track is what? Yeah, the New Covenant, the church age is what they, they call it. And during this church age, then uh, you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, and so there's the gospel direction or the New Covenant direction, and there's the Old Covenant direction, and these are the two ways to get up to God. So, and, and, I, and my, I, I might add here, Greg and I were jokingly talking about this before uh, class, is so that theology is completely unknown until the late 19th century, 
when John Darby invented this, the idea of the secret rapture, and we got to get the church out of here and going to fly up and get out of here so that God can deal with Israel and get back to keeping that law. Uh, there is nothing more anti-Christian than dispensationalism. It is the dirge upon modern Christianity. I'm just thankful that A, it's only been around for a little over 100 years, and I'm also thankful that it is slowly dying. And, and some of the, the people still scraping at trying to hold on to it so they can keep their secret rapture are, are now having to modify it. And I had a, when I was in, in Baptist seminary, I had a, a professor who was like on his third modification of dispensationalism so he could keep that rapture. And I'm like, dude, how about just give up on it? You know, come on over with us to the dark side. Become a Presbyterian. And if I went a Presbyterian at that point, I just knew that it was bunk. And uh, so the idea is, is that you can earn your way. Listen closely to this answer. This is clutch. Do we know what clutch means, Phil? Is that okay to say too? Okay, all right, just checking. God began to reveal the gospel already. In paradise, referring to what? The Garden of Eden. You've heard me preach on this and teach on this and preach on this again. And I'm going to keep on preaching on it. Where is what we call theologically the proto-evangelium? Where's the first time we hear the gospel? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Man has fallen. Adam and Eve have fallen in their sin. And we get to God's pronouncement of judgment. And He begins the pronouncement of judgment with Satan in the form of a serpent. And boom! There's the gospel, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The idea of Christ coming and suffering on our behalf, dying an atoning death upon the cross, Satan shrilling in victory as he is crucified, and yet Christ resurrecting from the dead, conquering both sin and death. That's the gospel, and it's been preached from the fall ever since. Secondly, what are some examples of how the gospel was revealed by the holy patriarchs? What are some examples of how God, who preached the gospel to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, then began also to preach to us through the patriarchs and through the prophets? How about Abraham? How about Genesis chapter 22, verse 18? In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Pointing to which direction? The pronouncement that the nations will be blessed by the one to come and the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Or the, the other one in Judah's blessing. And actually, this is actually, so, so heads up, this is actually my Easter sermon. So I don't want to give a little too much away here. But my Easter sermon is from Jacob's blessing to his children. And he says all these things, it's that section of scripture where you're like, not Sure, that was a blessing. That did not sound so good. But when he gets to Judah, he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Just teeing that up. It's coming. Easter Sunday, right? But the idea is, is that, that through the patriarchs, Abraham... 
Isaac, Jacob, through the prophets. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 23, which I think I have in your handout. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he would be called the Lord is our righteousness. And again, we could go on to Micah and we go into the New Testament where Paul says that to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins and through his name. In other words, the Apostle Paul was saying, if you want to hear the gospel, now it was preached in the garden, but if you want to hear the gospel, go to the prophets. What? The gospel in the prophets? Yes, the gospel in the prophets. God is pointing over and over and over again in His Word to the Son of God, the sinless sacrifice for our sins. And so how did the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law foreshadow the gospel? Well, it's like what Brandon said earlier, is they, they were animal sacrifices, and they were pointing to this. And, I, and I'll just read to you, we're almost out of time, but read to you an excerpt from Hebrews chapter 10, which says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered each year, make perfect those who draw near. You pause there for just a second, and when you read that, you're like, Okay, I get it. Christ was the once offered atoning sacrifice to, divine, to satisfy divine justice, reconcile us to God. I got it. But what else you have to realize is what the writer of Hebrews is saying in there is, hey, also those sacrifices were pointing to Him. Those sacrifices, every single one of them, every single day, over and over and over again, had a greater point than the actual sacrifice. They were pointing to the one to come and foreshadowing the gospel and the full revelation of it in Christ. You may recall that Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses? The one who went up on the mountain, came down with the Ten Commandments? That Moses? Because I'm in the middle of my annual Bible reading right now. Hopefully you are too. I'm in Leviticus. And I'm reading about the building of the temple and the threads. And I'm like, huh? Right? But it's there. It's there. Moses was pointing to Christ. Jesus said, he wrote of me. And so the idea is contrary to the idea that Old Testament believers were saved by works of the law. They were not. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Those who believed in the promise to come, so also those who look back, that's us, to the promise fulfilled in Christ. <clears throat> These are, Paul says, a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, everything that we see from paradise to the patriarchs to the prophets and on, all of that, the substance of it, 
is Christ. And we got to stop there because I'm out of time. Uh, but the general idea that I, I want to leave you with, and we'll go and carry on this more, is that Christ, God and man, two distinct natures, one person forever, is the fulfillment of what God had been foreshadowing from the fall. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you that the mediator is the man, Jesus Christ, and that he has done what we could not. He has satisfied divine justice, that he has reconciled us to you. And even now, he continually intercedes on our behalf. All praise and glory and honor be to the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.